From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Finding affordable housing is challenging enough, but some people still find themselves on the outs based on how they pay their rent. And I didn't understand why landlords wouldn't accept it because it's it's guaranteed rent, you know, like you're they're guaranteed to get this money each month. So I thought, yeah, I could go anywhere with it. A relatively new state law is supposed to prevent discrimination and unfair housing practices. But is it working? Then the documentary Reclaiming Denver's Chinatown makes sure a long lost part of Colorado history is not forgotten. It's so meaningful when you've been invisible and your, your culture, your ethnicity has been invisible for most of your life. And for someone and for the general public to finally be like, I see you. I know you're here, and I respect that. If you have a car you're ready to part with, have you thought about donating it to Colorado Public Radio? Car donations from listeners like you are a really important part of CPR's funding, and it's easy to do. Just fill out a form, schedule a pickup, and supply the title. Soon, your car will be on its way to help fund the fair, fact-based news reporting you count on. Get started at CPR.org support. And thanks. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Since January 1st, 2021, it has been illegal for landlords in Colorado to treat anyone applying for housing differently based on their source of income. Yet, those who work in the fair housing industry here say the problem persists not just in Denver, but statewide. Joining me now is John Paul Morosi, the Outreach and Education Coordinator for the Denver Metro Fair Housing Center, to give us an update on how this relatively new Colorado law is working. John Paul, welcome. Good morning, Chandra. Great to be here. Ooh, I love the energy. <laughs> so explain for us, what does it mean for a landlord to discriminate against someone based on their source of income? What sources are you referring to? Well, the most common form of discrimination are people who are trying to use these housing vouchers under Section 8 or uh, state programs. And sometimes they've waited 18 months, two years to get a voucher, and then the discrimination happens. And um, the forms that it takes, one, are landlords who simply outright refuse to accept the housing voucher, mm. two, uh, refusing to count the value of the voucher toward the ratio that the landlord requires say three to one or f sometimes four to one income to a ratio, income to rent, mm -hmm. or sometimes steering the person. So a landlord, we had an instance of a lady who got a housing voucher after several years of waiting, uh, was told on the phone that the apartment complex accepted the housing voucher, mm -hmm. uh, come on down and apply. When she got down there and applied, she said, well, we do accept housing vouchers, but not in this building. Most of our housing voucher holders are more comfortable living in this building on the other side of town. Mm. So that's, that's a classic example of steering. And these... Uh, this is the same kind of pattern of discrimination that we've seen in racial discrimination and dis discrimination against persons with disabilities under uh, fair housing laws for many years. Yes, and your team at the Denver Metro Housing Center has said that this issue disproportionately impacts the unhoused and those with disabilities. How the so? Denver Metro Fair Housing Center has found that 80% of all the housing voucher holders in the state of Colorado 
live in households with at least one person with a disability. Hmm. And also here in the Denver area in particular, we know that uh, a high proportion, four out of five housing voucher holders, are black, Latino, or Native American. And the saddest part of all is that this is an unnecessary barrier that people transitioning out of homelessness are facing. Uh, just imagine, you're out on the street, you've you waited, you finally get your housing voucher, now you're in the housing market, and the door is closed in your face by a landlord who is unlawfully uh, refusing to accept your housing voucher. That's why we're doing this statewide campaign to end unlawful discrimination against housing voucher holders. Well, I had the opportunity recently to speak with Shelly Franson. She's a single mom based out of Wheat Ridge who struggled with homelessness and housing insecurity for months with her two girls. She says she believes she faced income source discrimination when she tried to use a voucher to secure long-term housing. So I had won the Section 8 lottery, which is, you know, like you put in your names and it just gets drawn. And so I thought that, you know, that was going to be awesome that once I got this the Section 8 voucher that I should be good to go and finding housing. But then I found that places weren't necessarily too accepting of it. And right before, I don't know if it was about the time that they enacted the new the new law, but people would say, no, we don't accept Section 8 or we're not set up to accept Section 8, things like that. And then after the law, I found that they got kind of creative with it. And then they would say that you have to make three to three and a half times the amount of rent for your income. So like when I'm looking at places that they're like $2,000, which I should have been able to afford, they would say, no, you have to make three times the amount of rent. So at $6,000, then you don't even qualify for a voucher anymore. So that was one way I found they were getting around it. And then the other thing that I actually didn't realize was discrimination was that they were telling me that they I couldn't rent at places because my voucher didn't cover the amount of rent. So here in Wheat Ridge, a two-bedroom voucher is $1,850, I think, is the, the, the standard payment. And with my income, everything that I figured from the HUD website and what I knew about the program, I should have been able to afford a unit that was at least $2,000. That would have been not more than 40% of my income. Mm. But I was going to places and they were telling me that if the rent was $1,875, that I couldn't rent there because my voucher didn't cover the rent. And so, and I thought that that was a real thing. Like, I'm like, well, I thought I could pay, you know, my portion of the rent. And they're like, no, no, you can't do that. And I even had one apartment complex. I wanted the place that I looked at originally. It was a townhouse. It was two levels. It was right in my budget. And then she told me that my voucher didn't cover the full amount of rent. So, but she did have another property somewhere else for uh, cheaper that wasn't anywhere near what I wanted, wasn't in the right neighborhood for me and my kids. But I almost went ahead and applied for the place because I thought I didn't have any other option. Prior to being entered into the Section 8 lottery, Mm -hmm. you and your girls experienced homelessness, living in different shelters, living with friends. How did it feel to actually receive a Section 8 voucher and then feel like when you did try to present that to potential landlords that they were not very open to considering you as a tenant? Yeah, it felt almost more like a barrier than than a blessing. Like I was so excited to have this Section 8 voucher. I thought, you know, and I didn't understand why landlords wouldn't accept it because it's it's guaranteed rent, you know, like you're they're guaranteed to get this money each month. So I thought, 
yeah, I could go anywhere with it. And then finding out that there were landlords that didn't want to accept it. And then I heard that there was, there were stereotypes as to section eight recipients. And that's why a lot of landlords were hesitant to accept them. And it was just, it was really deflating. Does it give you some peace of mind that Colorado has addressed this legally? Yes, yes. Because at least I know now that there's will be some recourse for some of the, or, you know, something can be done about it instead of just feeling hopeless. That was Shelly Franson, a single mom based out of Wheat Ridge, sharing her story. So what should someone do if they feel they, they, they've been discriminated against based on their source of income? Well, let me say right off the bat, in, in Colorado, we're better than this. This campaign to end discrimination against unlawful uh, denying uh, housing voucher holders the ability to rent an apartment uh, is out of line with the values of Coloradans who I know uh, all Coloradans feel everyone has deserves an equal opportunity to live in the housing of their choice. So what a person should do if they're feeling uh, discriminated against is pick up the phone. Uh, call the Denver Metro Fair Housing Center at 720-279-4291 or go to the website of the Colorado Civil Rights Division. That's ccrd.colorado.gov and file a complaint. And for landlords, I want to say this. Landlords need to know and respect the law. We are here to partner with landlords so that this process can be smooth and a, and a process that works in terms of uh, what the state legislature intended when they passed this law. We're here to educate landlords. We're here to educate tenants. And that's why we have this campaign underway. We would like to do forums in every part of the state. We have dates set for one in the southern part of Colorado. We have a date for one in northern Colorado. We want to come to every part of the state from Grand Junction to Salida to Kiowa County uh, mm -hmm. because this affects 29,000 Coloradans, your neighbors. And, you know, this is, we're not, each of us are not that far away from this. Uh, national studies showed that 56% of Americans cannot cover a $1,000 emergency financial situation, emergency financial crisis. So um, this is not something that affects someone else. It could affect you and me. Well, as we wrap up, I have one more question. Several of the landlords that I spoke to spoke about their concerns about the delay in payment with Section 8 in particular, but probably also other programs. Is there any uh, support out there to speed up the process? Many saying part of their issue is slow payment. Yeah, I can't speak for every processor of housing vouchers around the state, but I know that the biggest one in the state, the Denver Housing Authority, is working very hard uh, to speed up that initial payment process. And, and look, uh, there's a study done by Rocket Mortgage, uh, not exactly a housing advocate for poor people, <laughs> and they find that, uh, the, here's what the bottom line is, they said, Section 8 is an important market that has much to offer participating landlords. It guarantees payments for 70% of fair market rent. Uh, generous annual rent hikes, low vacancy rates, and good profit margins. So I think it's enough said from the business side. This is a matter of Coloradans pull, pulling together, and as our chairman of our board says, getting to a place called better 
together. And we have a video by that name. Yes, a you place have a called public Better. service announcement. Yes, we do. It's a beautiful, uh, it's in 30-second segments and also a five-minute version, A Place Called yeah. Better. Uh, funded by the Denver Foundation, and that's a core part of our campaign. So we would love to work with you as a way for everyone to get involved in this campaign. We want to bring these community forums on fair housing to every part of the state. All you need to do is pick up the phone and give us a call at 720-279-4291, and we'll be there to work with you. John Paul, thank you. And I thank you for inviting me here today, Chandra. What a pleasure. Thank you. That was John Paul Morosi, the Outreach and Education Coordinator for the Denver Metro Fair Housing Center. We talked about a relatively new law that went into effect in Colorado in January of 2021. It made it illegal for landlords in Colorado to discriminate against anyone applying for housing based on their source of income. We also heard from Shelly Franson, a single mom based out of Wheat Ridge, who says the law helped her finally secure housing for her and her two girls. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. Listen, that thing, the state legislative session, it's over. Lawmakers have wrapped up their work. Housing and taxes. Progressive policies and moderate politics. And so much more. We're up for debate this year. And we're here to explain what did and didn't get done. And to look behind the curtain to see why that happened. In a new episode of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. At CPR.org and wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Today, Denver's Lodo neighborhood, a cool and catchy abbreviation for Lower Downtown, is home to thriving businesses, homes, restaurants, and art galleries. But many people don't realize that once upon a time, the area located near current-day Coors Field and the revitalized Union Station Entertainment District was once home to Denver's Chinatown, much like you often hear about in, say, San Francisco or New York City. The rise and fall of Denver's Chinatown is the subject of a documentary produced by the city of Denver called Reclaiming Denver's Chinatown. Let me first say that uh, Denver's Chinatown was a thriving working-class community. It existed uh, to, well, serve the uh, Chinese who were living in the city of Denver, but also uh, in Colorado itself, and also for recreation. Uh, Clearly, this was a place where uh, they would feel comfortable and secure, especially since they weren't welcomed Uh, in other places. Joining me now is Roxana Soto from the City of Denver's Office of Storytelling. We're also joined by Joey Ha, who is featured in the film and who currently serves as vice chair of the organization Colorado Asian Pacific United. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. The story of Denver's Chinatown is heartbreaking yet fascinating. Roxana, as you were making this documentary, what was the most eye-opening thing you learned? I think you already kind of mentioned that the fact that so many people didn't know it existed. I'm not from Denver originally, so I felt like I had an excuse. I was like, you know, I'm not from here, so I've been here 16 years and I don't know about it. But it was overwhelming to hear that so many people were like, what? You know, Denver had a Chinatown? When? Where? What are you talking about? So I think to me that was the the most 
kind of like shocking thing. But then, because people didn't know that it existed, there's also, in the, doing the research, it was very hard because there was nothing written about it except maybe the riot and it was done incorrectly. And uh, finding archival images to go with the documentary was super hard. We relied heavily on the um, family members and the research that they had done to be able to put that together and get a better picture of what uh, this Chinatown, this very, very cool place uh, was like. Yeah, I can relate because that was my reaction, too. And I've been in Colorado for uh, over a decade and I never heard of this. So paint the picture for us. What was Denver's Chinatown like in its heyday? Yeah, so from what we understand from what we've heard, and uh, Dr. Wei, um, history professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, wrote a book in which he describes uh, the historic Chinatown as a thriving place. It initially started with people that came after building the transcontinental rail- railroad, um, the Chinese immigrants that were instrumental in the building of the uh, transcontinental railroad. That's another uh fact that a lot of people don't realize how important they were in making that happen. So once that was done and they moved to uh, the mining, they eventually ended up in in this part of of Denver. But yeah, I mean, it had, you know, all kinds of businesses, restaurants, um, like you were saying before, residential and the businesses were there. A lot of the stuff stuff happened um, in in the alley. And that's, you know, uh, this this, uh, word that they use, this phrase that they use, uh, hop alley, which... uh, makes a reference to the opium dens that used to be there. But yeah, I mean, it, would, it, it sounds like it was a, you know, it was definitely a, a gritty place just because they, again, these were immigrants that really weren't welcome, you know? So it was kind of like a part of town where maybe they didn't get all the stuff that, um, also Denver was very new. This We're talking about, you know, uh, 10 years after Den- Denver was founded. Um, and yeah. I understood it was very densely populated. Right. It was uh, very close quarters. Right. Very close quarters. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, I I don't know. Sometimes while making the documentary, it was kind of like I close my eyes and try to imagine just the sounds and, you know, the smells. I, I can only imagine all of that. Dr. Wei likes to say in the documentary that it was definitely a haven for, you know, Chinese immigrants, Chinese uh, Americans. Uh, they felt uh, safe there, you know, because they didn't feel safe uh, anywhere else. And he always likes to say that, you know, it was a good place to go eat Chinese food. And that, that that's, that's always a good idea. That's my thoughts were. I was like, I bet this food was amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Spoken like a true New Orleanian to think about the food. <laughs> Me. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly geographically, where was Chinatown located in downtown Denver? So the historical one, the original one, was between Wazee and Blake Street and between 14th and 17th Streets. So then it extended and it went all the way to 21st, uh, so closer to what Coors Field is right now. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't large, if you think about it. It wasn't a very large area. But um, And they weren't, you know, at the height, it, I think they, they reached maybe a thousand people. So we're not talking, you know, gigantic community, but we're definitely, I mean, a thousand people is a good amount of people that you would think, you know, they left a mark and we, we should know about them. And, and that they were there. So it was a thriving economic center for the Asian community and Asian businesses. What led to its demise? Yeah, well, so uh, definitely one of the one of the reasons was, was the anti-Chinese race riot of October 31st, 1880, uh, which is when um, there was a brawl at a, at a saloon in the area between, uh, I believe it was two Chinese workers. Yeah, it was... 
there it was a pool hall, and then there were Chinese folks playing pool, and then there were also white folks, and um, some white folks started harassing those Chinese folks, and um, the Chinese folks were asked to leave to prevent an altercation. And then they went out the back um, in the alleyway, and they were followed by the white folks, and it started becoming a fight. And then it became a riot, and then um, before you knew it, there were thousands of white folks that were descending on Chinatown and um, destroying the businesses. They were brutalizing the people that they saw there, and they, they lynched a man whose name was Luck Young. Yeah, yeah, it was, I can't imagine, you know, um, how shocking that must have been. To me, it's always important to point out, though, that what happened at the saloon the way I see it, it was a detonator for something that was already there. It's like, you know, there, there already were racist feelings and all this, like, anger pent up. Like, it happens with so many other events, if you look at the history of the United States, right, where it's like, I don't know, people like to talk about that detonator, like, that's the reason why. It's like they got into a fight and then it became this horrible thing and this riot. But I think there's stuff brewing in the back, you know, that has to lead to something like this. It doesn't just happen like, you know, okay, well, mm -hmm. let's get into a fight and all of a sudden a thousand people or, or hundreds of people descend on, on, uh, on this, this area of, of, of Denver to destroy and pretty much just obliterate the area. Well, Roxana, as an African-American, this made me think about two other high-profile similar incidents in history. Uh, one of the is the 1923 Rosewood Massacre, and this is all related to the black community. So this was a black town in Florida that was burned to the ground, and the story was told in a film in the late 1990s by the late filmmaker John Singleton called Rosewood. So if anyone's interested in learning about that story, they may check that out. And then also the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre, which was in Oklahoma. Its 100th anniversary was observed in 2021. So those are the kind of cases you think about is this history of communities that were thriving, they were bustling communities, and they were the center of these different ethnic communities burnt down due to a racial incident. Tell us a little about this anti-Chinese sentiment that is believed to have led to this race riot? Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the United States is uh, has that history uh, that's common among many immigrant groups, right? So anybody that came in that didn't look like them uh, definitely already created, and that's seen throughout uh, the history, throughout all kinds of ethnicities, you know? It, it, it's always interesting to me that it's, it's even like it doesn't even matter if it's what race it is because, you know, it was against Italians, against, against Irish. Groups, yeah. So this was happening to the Chinese for sure. There was the feeling of, you know, one, they're different. They speak a different language. They look different than us. And uh, they're coming to take our jobs. That was, <laughs> which is like when you think about it, it's like, wait, we're, we were talking about that back then. We're still talking about it now. Right. There was that sentiment. Um, they also claimed that, you know, this opium dens that I was talking about, and it's like, you know, they're bringing all these bad things to the city. You know, it's just becoming, who are these people? Uh, their food smells different. All this, just been different, been different. Who, who are they? We don't want them here. So that had already started happening. And I, I, I mean, from the research that I've done, that's the, my belief that that continued to grow and grow and grow until it came to that point when then there, there was this riot. But it's important to point out also that after the riot, it, what, what came out of the riot, one of the things that came out of the riot was the Chinese Exclusion Act, mm. which is, is important to, to, to talk about, um, you know, which 
basically meant that Chinese were excluded from coming to the United States, but the Chinese that were here were excluded from becoming citizens. And that is huge. You know, I don't know, I don't know if people realize how important that is, you know, because if you are not a citizen, you can't vote. And if you can't vote, you really don't have power as a community. You know, it's very, very difficult to continue to thrive and, and go on. Roxana, you are a former journalist and an Emmy Award-winning bilingual documentary filmmaker, producer, and author. You co-wrote, co-directed, and produced this film for the City of Denver's Office of Storytelling, which I'll ask you about a little bit later. But tell us a little bit more about the process. What was it like? Yeah, so it actually started with uh, two cousins, Linda Lang and Heather Lang Clifton. They reached out to us. They reached out to the Office of Storytelling and basically said that... um, you know, they had these stories of their families and they were very worried that they were going to go away and disappear. The elders in their family had started to, you know, pass away and they realized like, oh, my God, we have so much history and nobody really talks about it. It's not in the history books. They don't teach it in school. And uh, we want to preserve this. We need to preserve this. So they reached out because that is pretty much the mission of the Office of Storytelling to cultural preservation through story. And uh, this was back in 2021, at the beginning of 2021. Oh, my God. We talked for about an hour, I think. And (laughs) so many stories, so many anecdotes. I don't know. I've always been a sucker for a good story. I mean, as a journalist, obviously, that's my bread and butter. It was just incredible. It was like, I, I, I had, like I said, I had no idea. So to me, it was like, we need to put this out there. You know, we need to let people know. We initially thought it was going to be a story about their family, about the Lung family, mm. you know. Um, and uh, we started the project like that, kind of like, OK, well, let's tell that story. But then, you know. We were in touch with Kapu and we were in touch with Dr. Wei and the thing started kind of like becoming this bigger thing. And it's like, oh, my God, there's a bigger story here. There's really is a bigger story. And this story of what was Chinatown and what were these Chinese immigrants and what they did for uh, the the, helping in, in the creation of the city of Denver, but also what's been done now, what's been done today, because it is historical. But there's stuff that's happening today, which is really cool, which, you know, we wanted to make sure that people knew about this reclaiming of Denver's Chinatown. Well, it's wonderful that you let the story kind of organically tell itself. So it evolved into something different. You are not Asian. In fact, you're Peruvian. Did you have to build trust to get people to open up in this film? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's I think that is the biggest challenge. It really is, you know. I think it, I'm not going to lie, I think it does help the fact that I'm um, Latina and I'm Peruvian, like you said, and I'm an immigrant. Mm. So I think that definitely puts me in a different position maybe to be able to reach out and just kind of, you know, it's not that I'm making it up. It's some some of the stuff I've gone through myself. You know, it wasn't even generations ago because I came here as a teenager. So Mm. while I've lived most of my life in the United States, I, I, I do know the, the feelings and the things that people go through when, when they immigrate. So that, that was like a connection they felt that you had to the experience. I think so. I think so. I mean, I don't go around saying like, hey, I'm an immigrant. Look at me. You can trust me. So, <laughs> you know, I don't do that. But but it's uh, but I like that you, you asked this question because I think that um, that's really important. And I work very hard at that where, you know, I, I don't immediately just like set it out and be like, okay, this is exactly how we're going to do it. One, two, three. And it's kind of like, like you were saying, and I do have the luxury, luckily, to spend the time. So 
really it's just listening, a lot of listening and kind of like maybe asking a few questions to guide the conversation, but it's really just let me let me hear you out. And, you know, maybe not everything's going to make it into the documentary. And I can assure you that it didn't because with <laughs> with the lungs, we spoke, I think, the first time we were in the house for five hours. So, wow. Yeah, so... Oh, uh, that's some cutting room floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, trust is, is of the utmost importance. And for me, the way that that works is really sitting down and, and just listening. Listen. Now, Joey, let's bring you back into the conversation. So you are vice chair for CAPU, which is Colorado Asian Pacific United, and also the founder of CORE, which stands for Community Organizing for Radical Empathy. And you are interviewed in the film... Yeah, we were so excited that I Am Denver was doing that documentary. We had been working with the community for quite some time. We were working with the Linda and Lin- we call them the Linda and Linda, <laughs> um, the Lindas, uh, and we were just consistently trying to make sure how can we tell these stories in an authentic way. And so we were so grateful to have the opportunity to have these historic families, these stories being told in um, such a genuine and beautiful um, format. Um, specifically, Kapu works a lot to elevate and celebrate these untold histories as it relates to the local Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. So what we were able to do in the documentary was also talk about, you know, what are we doing now? So we know about our past, we know about our history, um, and we're bringing this into the forefront of our minds. Um, What next? How can we continue to honor this legacy? How can we continue to remember these stories and make sure that they're not lost? So Kapu is um, doing a variety of things, including the installation of a community mural um, and the installation of three historic markers. Uh, The community mural is supposed to represent the past, present, and future of Chinatown. And we actually did our, um, we call it a paint breaking. Um, So it was like the (laughs) groundbreaking. We did a paint breaking a a few weeks ago. um, And it's really beautiful, vibrant, showing the trajectory of the Chinese diaspora. And the historic markers are located strategically across lower downtown to tell the story about the Chinatown. Um, We have a marker talking about the history of Chinatown. Um, We have a marker talking about how the riot started and what happened. And we have a marker talking about the history of Luk Young, who was the man who was unfortunately lynched. Um, And we're hoping that with these pieces, we can do a bit of placemaking, right? We can, in a way, metaphorically and physically reclaim a bit of this space and say, yes, this was a Chinatown here. Um, Anyone walking past here should know that this used to be a Chinatown. That's currently what we're working on, um, but we definitely want to work on other histories, um, other Asian American Pacific Islander stories, uh, and eventually we want to have an Asian American Pacific Islander Culture and History Museum, which would be the first in the Rocky Mountain area, as well as re-envision the alleyway that used to be the Chinatown to be um, some place that folks can go visit, something like the Dairy Block. I'm actually going to ask you a little bit more about that mural a little bit later. But back to just the film, I understand you all introduced the filmmakers to the historic Chinese families that were involved in the documentary. Yeah, I I don't re- recall exactly how it happened, but we were all so interconnected. Um, we worked with uh, Linda and Linda all the time. Um, in fact, they lead one of our storytelling work groups. So we are constantly working with them. Um, Dr. William Wei is also on our board. Mm. Um, so it really was just like this huge communal effort where we, we just started talking to each other and it, it just happened really organically, like what we were talking about. And it just ended up being this larger story where um, there are so many different components to it and all of us were interconnected, interrelated, which I think also shows a lot about the meaning of um, community. Um, and shows a lot about how this this 
piece that was put out was truly a community effort. It was a grassroots effort. It wasn't um, someone coming into the community and extracting stories that they just thought were interesting. Um, it was something that the community thought was important and wanted to put out as well. Is this story of Denver's Chinatown, is this a story you grew up knew, knowing about and it was just widely known or was it something you discovered later in life? So the Chinatown story in Denver is one that not a lot of people know about, including the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. Um, Growing up, um, Asian American Pacific Islander history isn't really taught in schools, um, not on a national level, and definitely not on a local level. So with me, um, and I was born and raised in Colorado, I never knew about the Chinatown until um, maybe half a decade ago when some some activists and advocates were trying to raise awareness about it. Um, And it is definitely something new that not a lot of our community knows about. I mean, hopefully more people know now, you know, after the work that we've been doing. But it's it's important to know um, and to think about and reflect on why these histories aren't being told and to realize some of the structural components that prevent these stories from reaching, you know, the light, the light of day, right? Overall, I think it's most important for us to remember that Asian American history is American history, right? Our, our stories are just as important as what we hear in the mainstream narrative. Our people have been huge contributors to the building of this nation, right? We're talking about the Chinese Americans and um, building one half of the transcontinental railroad that was what really set America um, economically on the map. You found out about this story later in life. When you heard about it, did, was it a sense of pride for you or was there some anger about what happened? I think there was a lot of sadness and anger. I think growing up being told in so many small ways that your history, your culture isn't important is hard. And then hearing that there's this big part of your local history that people don't know about was was very frustrating. Um, you have the first offense of the riot itself. You know, you have the federal legislation and the the state legislation and the xenophobic society structures that prevented our Chinatown from really rebuilding in the same way. And that's like the first offense, right? And then you have the second offense of people not remembering that it ever ever even happened. That's that's definitely what was going through my mind and how I was feeling. It was sort of like, no, this is terrible, but. Almost like, of course, this would happen. I'm not surprised. I'm just disappointed. What would you say, in your view, are the highlights of the film? I love the focus on the families. We are so lucky to have these sort of living legends with us, um, these matriarchs, you can say, right, um, that can bring this history to the forefront because the peak of the Chinatown was maybe around a thousand folks. And now we don't really know who was there. We, we know some like some records of it, but in terms of families that have stayed here, those are the really the only two that we know of. And so being able to preserve this and hear from them directly, wow, that's that's living history. That is such a blessing to be able to hear directly from their families about their stories and not just the stories of you know tragedy of struggle but also stories of you know resilience of there's like some fun stories that 
they share about what it was like growing up in the Chinatown mm. and um, how the families were able to make money and like they, there's like the whole portion about like um, a lottery and like um, and how it wasn't necessarily legal but you know you had to do <laughs> you had to do what you had to do to survive you know and I, I think that just brought a lot of humanity to the stories and it brought a lot of this um, this personal touch that we don't really get in textbooks. Now, by no means are you a representative of an entire community, but in your view, what does having this film and this story finally told mean to members of your community here in Colorado? I think it's so exciting because it's it's showing the larger community that the Chinese community was here. We've been here. You know, we've we've been here. We were we helped develop Denver the way that we know it. We are still here and we'll continue to be here. It's it, it's it's so meaningful when you've been invisible and your your culture, your ethnicity has been invisible for most of your life. And for someone and for the general public to finally be like, I see you. I know you're here and I respect that. And it's definitely huge in just saying that we exist. That is what is so meaningful about this documentary. May, of course, is Asian American mm-hmm. Pacific Islander Heritage Month. What do you hope people who see this film especially those who were not familiar with the story, will get from it? I would really love folks to leave it with a lens of curiosity, um, to maybe start questioning about other histories. If, if they didn't know that there used to be a Chinatown, and um, they didn't know about the Chinese history, maybe start questioning, do you know about the Japanese-American history? Do you know about the Latinx history, right? Or the Black African-American history here? Because a lot of our histories, unfortunately, are not really being told and people don't know about it. And we we often hear that, you know, Denver isn't diverse, Colorado isn't diverse, which in some ways is true, of course. But the fact of the matter is that there have been people of different diverse backgrounds that have been here from the beginning and that have been instrumental to our city, that have had amazing lives and amazing stories that we just don't hear about. And it's so important for us to honor it. So I, I hope people leave the film um, with a lens of curiosity, with a desire to learn more about these communities that, that maybe they haven't really given a second thought to. Joey, as I mentioned, you are vice chair of CAPU, which stands for Colorado Asian Pacific United. Tell us about the organization and the work that you do. So Kapu, we really want to celebrate some of our histories that we don't know. Um, We started the work with Denver's Historic Chinatown as our sort of capstone project, but it's not the only project that we want to do. We definitely want to start looking at sort of the Japanese-American communities that were here. And there was a really big surge of the Japanese-American community after World War II because Colorado had an internment camp called Amachi. And these people were forcibly moved from their homes, put here um, for no reason other than the fact that they were Japanese. And Colorado afterwards, and Denver specifically, was welcoming towards Japanese Americans after, you know, the whole country wasn't. And then so we see a large influx of Japanese Americans moving to Denver. So that's something that we're interested in covering. Um, We're interested in um, covering the Southeast Asian diaspora that we see a large amount of folks coming here after the Southeast Asian conflicts around the 70s and 80s, and that they have built their own ethnic enclave right in Little Saigon. And there's just so many of these histories and stories that we don't know about, and we just want to tell them. So that's a lot of what the work that we're doing. We also have a task force that's building um, curriculum, Asian American Pacific Islander curriculum for K to 12 schools. So we're doing a lot wow. of things. Earlier, you mentioned this mural that you hope will truly tell the story of the fall of 
Denver's Chinatown. But from what I understand, that project uh, prompted Denver's mayor, Michael Hancock, to apologize last April to the descendants of the Chinese families affected by this 1880 riot, making Denver the first city outside of California to issue a statement. To heal, we must be willing to face and address things we have avoided, apologize for wrongs we have committed, and follow through with the actions that are true to ongoing positive change. For too long, this painful history has been swept under the carpet and is without question a long overdue apology is indeed warranted. What are your thoughts about the apology? I think we were really excited to hear the apology. I think something that we were also able to do and we we're really grateful to do is we got to work with Derek Okubo, who's the executive director of Human Rights and Community Partnerships at the city of Denver, to help um, think about the apology in a way as not just like, I'm sorry that this had happened, but what next? So to start thinking about what commitments can the city make to truly, truly repair this relationship. And the, the apology was really meaningful, too, because we had those historic families there, and they received that apology, and they were so moved by it. We were able also, also to get some commitments from the city to help with the mural, to in the future support any of the work that we're doing. So, of course, that's exciting, too. Um, and I think we're excited because, you know, when, if you look at the apologies that happen in California, which are, of course, much needed and something to be celebrated in the sense of that recognition, um, a lot of those cities have a Asian-American and or Pacific Islander population that's around like 10 percent. Right. In Denver, our percentage is 4 mm. percent. So I feel like what it shows is that, you know, our community here might be smaller, but we do have a voice. We do make a difference and we can make a difference. Now, after the apology, the plaque came down. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about the plaque and what it means for it to be taken down? Yeah, so the plaque for a certain amount of time was sort of the only evidence that there was a Chinatown. And it was a product of its time, right? For its time, it was progressive. For its time, it was amazing that, you know, they were recognizing that there used to be a Chinatown. Mm -hmm. However, looking at it from our more modern lens, there were some things that were problematic about it. It described the the riot as the Chinese riot, um, which, you know, in the description, it does go further into saying that it wasn't the Chinese folks that started the riot. But <laughs> if that's in the title and that's the only thing you read, people might leave with the it perception. It felt like it was misleading. Yeah, it was misleading, right? And then they also talked about the area being called Hop Alley. And it's important to note that Hop Alley was a derogatory term, right? It wasn't made, it wasn't, a, oh, this is Hop Alley, super fun place to be. It was, this is Hop Alley, this is dirty, there's drugs, and these people are backwards. Um, and it didn't really explain much of that. Um, and the last thing about it that we took issue with was um, it described some of the white bystanders that went and helped the folks that were, um, that were being targeted, which is, of course, important. But that's what most of the plaque talked about, right? We want to hear more about the Chinatown. We want to hear about the experiences from the Chinese people, and we want to hear that perspective. So it was incredibly exciting for us to finally remove the plaque because it actually took us a really long time. When Kapu started, that was the first thing we wanted to do. Um, get that plaque down! <laughs> yeah, and, and it took us, oh, what was it, one to two years to finally get some traction on it, and we tried so many different ways to figure it out, and that we... Like, there was so much uh, digging that we had to do. Like, who owned the plaque? Um, and once we figured out who owned the plaque and they were okay with taking it down, we had to be like, oh, well, 
it's on a building and we have to get the building owner's permission and it was just this wow. entire debacle a lot of it took, work <laughs> yeah yeah it took a really long time and um, we were really lucky because we were able to get in touch with dr aisha Rousseau, who knew who to talk to you can say right and with that, we were able to get it removed pretty immediately after being connected with her. I, I just wanted to say, I have to say that, you know, everything that Joey said, but the plaque didn't even mention Luke Young, mm -hmm. who was the person that got lynched. At, wow. At the right. It didn't even mention. So uh, it seems like it didn't center those affected. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Roxana, you created this film through your work with the city of Denver's Office of Storytelling. And I personally had not heard of this office, and I'm guessing many others haven't either. Tell us about the office and the work that you do. Yes, absolutely. So the office was launched uh, four years ago in March of 2019. And the, really the mission is, uh, like I was saying before, cultural preservation through story. And, uh, you know, the way we do that is uh, through, through films, uh, lately through documentary films, but we've done other shorter films. With some of the topics you've covered. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Joy was talking about the Japanese-American uh, population, and that was one of the, not the first one, but one of the first documentaries that we worked on. We actually tell the story of Amache and Granada down in southeastern Colorado, mm -hmm. and um, we actually take Derek Okubo, who she mentioned, who is the head of the Human Rights and Community Partnerships Agency under which the Office of Storytelling falls. His family was incarcerated in Amachi. So we take him back to Amachi and, you know, he, we spend an afternoon there with him, uh, kind of like walking the grounds. It was incredibly difficult to do, you know, uh, just to, there's nothing left there. Again, you know, there's uh, one of the, like uh, they recreated a barrack and whatnot, but there's really nothing left there. And it just, I don't know how to explain it. It's kind of like something inside your soul. It, you know, you feel kind of like, what? There was an incarceration camp here, you wow. know, that that, that held American citizens, you know, because a lot of the, uh, the, ma the majority, I would say, of them were American citizens. They were Japanese-American. So I get all choked up. Um, it's hard. It's hard. But yeah, that's kind of like at the heart of the work that we do is bringing about, you know, these stories of, of people and communities that haven't had a chance, an opportunity they haven't been given that chance to say, hey, I am here too. We've been here for all this time. We were responsible for making Denver what it is today. And we have stories that we want to share with you, you know. So that's behind the creation of the Office of Storytelling for sure. Yes. And, uh, and just like your documentary on Chinatown, these films are accessible online. There's no cost to view them. What's next on the agenda in terms of the city of Denver's Office of Storytelling? Yeah, we, we have a few projects, but the biggest one that we're working on right now, and it's in the very beginning stages, is about the Native American community. And I'll just explain kind of quickly that last year, the city of Denver decided to start something um, called uh, Historic Context. And what that is, is looking at different buildings or places or areas that need to be preserved but through the ethnic lens. We have all these monuments and all these plaques and all these things but it's really told from the male white point of view, right? So the first one that the city got involved with was the Latino Chicano historic context and that was a big study in looking at what are some of these places that are important to the Latino and Chicano community in Denver that we need to work on to preserve, to you know, designate them as historic landmarks or whatnot. And so it was an incredibly, we, we also did a companion film with that. It was, a, like I said, a historic context study, but um, 
we did a companion film to go along with that that talks about some of these very special places that, you know, some of them are, are gone and, you know, they've been demolished and, and whatnot, but there's still some that are left that, you know, should be for sure um, landmarked and uh, remembered. So the next one that, that the city is getting involved, has gotten involved in is the Native American community. And I can't even begin to imagine how difficult that's going to be. If the Latino, Chicano, you know, some of these places are gone, just think about what that means for the Native American community, you know. Wow, um, you sound like you're going to be very busy. Very busy, very <laughs> exciting. Again, talking about trust, I, you know, we just started kind of like doing a lot of the research. So we're, we're, we're definitely very excited about this one. That was filmmaker Roxana Soto from the city of Denver's Office of Storytelling, who co-wrote, co-directed, and produced the documentary Reclaiming Denver's Chinatown, a thriving Asian residential and business district that was destroyed in an anti-Chinese riot in 1880. We were also joined by Joy Ha, who is featured in the film and who currently serves as vice chair of the organization Colorado Asian Pacific United. One final note, the mural joy reference that is dedicated to the city's historic Chinatown is more than 50% complete, but due to weather delays, it likely won't be finished until the end of this month, which again is Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.